Hey everybody, this is Jeff Friedman. Welcome to the pilot episode of my podcast where we'll talk about improv comedy, the history of Jewish humor, and the relationship between trauma and comedy. My podcast will feature interviews with writers, actors, directors, entertainers, comedians, and really just thoughtful people of all kinds on their associations and experiences with Jewish humor. When I first started conducting these interviews, I had some pretty specific ideas on how these three things fit together, but I think my interviews will show that these topics are nuanced, and long story short, maybe it's a bit more complicated than that. Things like religious identity and artistic identity sometimes raise more questions than answers. The title of this first season of the podcast will be It's a Rhythm, which is one of the most common answers I got when I asked my interviews how they identify Jewish humor in the world. What I do believe is that there is a rhythm. And a certain rhythm that's a little bit different. Jews need to talk to be funny, and I'll explain to you why. On today's episode, we have Mark Marin, stand-up comedian, actor, and the host of one of my favorite podcasts of all time, WTF. That's the name of the podcast. It was incredible to talk to him. I ran a few questions by him on these topics, and I'm excited for you to hear what he has to say. Here's Mark Marin. My project is, you know, on sort of Jewish humor's history a little bit, and I'm trying, you know, I, I take classes at Upright Citizens Brigade and I'm trying to look and see, you know, does Jewish humor have a history of sort of an improvisational style? Is it more of an observational style? Is it not one of any of these things at all? And maybe I'm just trying to force something onto it. I'm wondering if, you know, first of all, if you have a definition for Jewish humor or is it something you just kind of know when you see or you know when you hear it? Um <clears throat> I don't know. It seems like most of the humor I grew up with, you know, when you <clears throat> track it down, is usually Jews. I don't know if um, it's necessarily Jewish humor, but it seems like the Jewish um, influence creatively in show business is pretty vast and goes back a long time. I mean, I can't say it's exclusively Jewish, but I tend to think there's uh, some sort of uh, rhythm to it and some sort of um, style to it. Hmm. And who are some of the, the comedians that you were looking up to when you were younger? I mean, you know, were you looking up to comedians specifically before you got into it? Sure. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, I liked comedians a lot. I mean, I used to like... Buddy Hackett, Don Rickles, Jackie Vernon. I don't know if he's Jewish. Uh, you know, and then more modern guys, Richard Pryor, Woody Allen, uh, you know, Carlin. They weren't, you know, you know, a couple of them were Jewish. But, yeah, Richard Lewis. Um, who else was it? But, I mean, I, they, I always liked watching comics. You know, Rodney Dangerfield when I was younger. But, yeah, most of them were were Jewish from my recollection, the guys that I resonated with. Hmm. So do you, I mean, do they stay with you now? Do you feel like you have a relationship to those comedians and just to kind of, to Judaism through your comedy? I don't, I don't know if I necessarily have a relationship with, with Judaism as much as, uh, you, you know, I'm culturally Jewish and I, I, you know, I always, 
uh, you know, from a very young age, I, you, you know, I gravitated towards this sort of New York uh, Jewish comedy rhythm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I still like those guys. Uh, yeah, but I like other guys too. But I think in terms of influence and in, in, in watching them when I was a kid, um, I, I really got a, a kick out of specifically Jewish comics. And I also liked knowing they were Jewish. And when you say you gravitated toward those traditions, I'm, I've been curious if, you know, you see yourself as kind of seeking out and finding comedy or if in general you kind of see it more as comedy finding you or is that just an oversimplification either way? I don't know. Like I, from a fairly young age, I was sort of, uh, I was interested in the <clears throat> role of the comic. You know, I don't know that I saw it as a, as a business, but I thought that there was something about, I think when I look back on it, that they seem to be able to put things into uh, an understandable presentation that they seem to have a handle on things and that, you know, there was a lot of relief involved in watching comedy and, uh, you know, and, and seeing how people frame philosophical ideas or observational ideas in that way seemed to, you know, bring me a lot of, um, you know, happiness, but also relief. So I thought it was a fairly honorable way to, uh, uh, a noble way to kind of understand the world, you know, and, and also share your perception. You know, you had, you were, you, you were able to share your point of view as long as it was funny. So I think that resonated with me. Do you ever do improv, Mark? Like in the sense of just, you know, actually with, with four chairs on a stage in front of an audience? I've been in improv situations. I improvise a lot when I do stand up uh, mm -hmm. with my environment and with, audience input sometimes and I've done some improv with with people um, I, I don't know the rules of it I've never sort of you know worked it as a discipline uh, in a group environment or, or or honed those type of skills but you know I'm pretty quick on my feet and most of the way I generate material is through improvising hmm. through ideas I was listening to your interview with Anna Ferris the other day and, you know, you had that little kind of riff where the two of you were pretending you were on a morning uh, yeah. talk show on the radio. I mean, to me, that's an improv scene. And I'm curious, yeah. you know, how, if at all, that change, you know, bits like that change an interview for you. Well, that interview was, you know, an outlier in general because mm -hmm. she, you, you know, had, you know, as a public personality chooses to, you know, not be forthcoming and, and, and figures out a lot of different ways to, uh, deflect, uh, you know, through charm and, and goofiness and, uh, you know, whatever else. So, you know, I was just going with the flow to see, you know, if at some point she would relent and, you know, be present in, in a way that was, conversational so uh it, that might have happened for a few minutes at the end but it was you know it was a difficult situation so it changed that interview but in my mind i knew that this will at least be funny and i can sort of go toe to toe to her comedically with these kind of games but you know in that way it made it a good interview i was conscious that i probably was not going to get uh the type of interview i'm used to doing out of this person so 
if uh, if she's just going to fuck around, I guess I'll fuck around too. <laughs> what would you say, you know, if you were thinking about the style of your stand-up? Uh, you know, I interviewed your friend Sam Lipsight uh, for my project as well, and he kind of thought you might be more in a category of Richard Pryor, who I still don't know much about. But um, do you see yourself as having an observational style in the way that, you know, I might, when I'm researching Jewish humor, I might find an example, um, you know, of Jerry Seinfeld. Do you see yourself having a relationship to that or is it different? No, I, I, I don't think I'm fundamentally that. I, I think I'm different uh, that, you know, you know, Richard Pryor was <clears throat> observational, but, you know, Jerry Seinfeld does not activate uh, a sort of uh, personal point of view, really. So, you know, that type of style where everything is looking out your side, outside of yourself with a certain kind of uh, organization of observations with no real self-reflection involved hmm. other than a tone. Um, that's not really what I do. And that's not what Pryor did. Uh, you know, Pryor was able to, you know, do characters and, uh, you know, from his past and, and sort of set stages with several different characters. Uh, he was able to sort of um, move through long form comedic bits, you know, doing characters or doing white people uh, and black people, you know, in various interactions. But he was also sort of fundamentally a self-reflecting comic who would use his own experience as the uh, basis of whatever social, cultural or, uh, you know, observations uh, that he had. So he put himself at the center of things usually except when he was doing, you know, bigger character pieces. So, but I think that I am a self-reflective philosophical comedian that I have done observational comedy in my life, you know, specifically at different times, political stuff. And, you know, I, I'm a little more conscious of it now, but there was, I think, mostly how I evolved as a comic in, in, my, in my personal purest form was to run it through me first hmm. that you know that it had to be either my intellectual experience or my actual experience uh that the the comedy was coming out of uh okay. not necessarily um what's up with socks you know like it, it, for me to do something like that it would be like you know i, I have a pair of socks and um, this is my problem with them. Can you tell me a little bit about on the podcast and anywhere else in your comedy um, why you think you know mental health and addiction are really common topics? Why or how it fits a comedic form? A comedic form or a person who does comedy? I guess more of a person who does comedy. So, you know, it could be off stage too. I don't know that like, I, I don't know that those numbers add up. Okay. You know, I, I, I can't, I can't honestly say that there are more depressive or neurotic or, 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 uh, uh, you know, troubled people in my profession, profession than there are in any other profession. Hmm. I, I think that 
I just, I, I think that's a tight. And my experience having interviewed so many people is that it doesn't always hold up. You know, there are plenty of, you know, if not well-adjusted people, relatively grounded comedic uh, talents in the world. You know, I, I didn't want to believe that, but it just turns out to be true hmm. that certainly there's a generation, uh, your generation or people who are a little older than you who came up through sketch, who know how to work well with other people, who have a, a certain amount of foresight into how they want to handle their career in show business or comedy. Uh, and then there are these sort of like, you know, comedians who are lone wolf people that generally may not fit into to normal or acceptable life uh, and have chosen to be this solitary you know, performer and move through the world like that, you know, that might have other implications about their personality, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're depressed or sad or, or, or fucked up people. Um, they might be socially awkward or they just don't fit in or have no patience for authoritarian structures or jobs or whatever. There's plenty of people uh, you know, of my generation who got into comedy because they didn't want to fucking work. So, you know, uh, or they were, you know, wanted to live on the road or they wanted to, you know, avoid something. But uh, I don't know about the depressive uh, sort of uh, troubled thing. That, I mean, you could categorize them as troubled if you want to pathologize, you know, that lifestyle or, or approach it that way. But I do think there is a language of, probably specifically Jewish comedy that mm -hmm. that came out of um, the 70s that was, you know, analysis driven uh, that, you know, there was, you know, I think Woody Allen set a certain standard uh, around that, uh, that, you know, then, you know, opened up the sort of language of that. I think, you know, uh, Elaine May um, may have done a bit of that as well with Mike Nichols. I think mm -hmm. that uh, you know, um, that, you know, Richard Lewis, certainly, but there was a sort of door that opened in the seventies, you know, after the sixties, when analysis became sort of the, the kind of thing that became a public conversation that, you know, psychology in general, as a practice and a treatment, you, you sort of you, you kind of blossomed, I think, in the early seventies. So, you know, these people who were doing stand-up at that time, you know, that kind of was integrated into, you know, the language of stand-up, you know, fairly, you know, a lot, mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, you know, that the neurotic guy as a form, as a comedic type was probably, I, I don't know, you'd have to do the research. It was probably a, a Jewish, uh, trip, right. um, you know, that, that sort of, you know, you started to see a lot in comedy uh, in the 70s. And I, th I think I maybe phrased the question not in an ideal way because I just, I, yeah, I just mean more in the sense of, you know, personal trauma and collective trauma, you know, things like the fact that the Holocaust is sort of, you know, has its own sphere in the world of comedy just seems like a really pronounced trait to me. Well, I, I think that, like, you know, you, you know, the, the way to track it is on some level, like, you know, you know, what were Jews really allowed to do at a certain point in this country once, you know, first generation Jews came here? I mean, you know, the effort was to either pass as as not being fundamentally Jewish socially and publicly so you could move within the culture or, you know, play to the, you know, to your people. 
you know, so I think that the comedians early on, it seems that, you know, many of the Borscht Belt guys and the Broadville guys, mm-hmm. you know, were, were still half speaking Yiddish. You know, I mean, not so much in vaudeville, but certainly, you know, they were playing to Jews, you know, guys like Myron Cohen, you know, some of the first sort of monologists of that time. So it was really, you know, whether the Holocaust or whatever, I don't know that they were, you know, I don't know when people thought it was okay to make jokes about the Holocaust. I mean, it was something, you know, around, you know, Mel Brooks and, you know, Hogan's Heroes and, you know, something started to happen. But when Nazis became funny... I don't know who did that initially, but um, but I think that you know Jews that you know escaped World War II or even came in here, came to this country earlier on. I, I don't know that every opportunity was open to them. So you know, Jewish entertainers in Yiddish theater in vaudeville, you know, you know, was a place where you know Jews could you know be Jews, and you know a lot of the audience was Jewish. And then they, I think they eventually learned how to entertain on a broader level. But it was. It was really an effort, you know, you know, for Jews to fit in, you know. And I think that the Jew in the community, like, you know, when you're playing to that, when Jews have their own comedy, you know, there's something about that, you know, because blacks had their own comedy. And, you know, these worlds were, were sort of separate until they became sort of mainstream. And some of those people who came out of vaudeville or the Borscht Belt, you know, started finding their way into television. Uh, but I, I, I don't know why. You know, essentially, so many of them were Jews, but I, I do know it had something to do with, you know, I, I, you know, there were Jewish boxers too at a certain point. You know, mm-hmm. there was a survival element to it. You know. And another question I want to try to raise with my project is, if in terms of touching on a subject like the Holocaust, you know, if there are certain lines to be drawn, do you have to be Jewish to make a joke about the Holocaust? Uh, no, you don't have to be Jewish. You, you you can make a joke about whatever you want, whoever you are, whatever you come from. I mean, you're just going to have to, you know, bear the brunt of the reaction to that joke. But, you know, you, you know we're afforded a certain freedom to do that. I mean, to make a joke about the Holocaust, you know, and, and make it funny. Uh, it seems that Jews have a, a certain, you know, uh, 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 the market cornered on that to a degree, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but, you know, we're certainly far enough from the Holocaust to where, you know, that generation of survivors. But I mean, I think that even within the Holocaust, if you read books, we got like, if you read, you know, Auschwitz by Primo Levi, or you read some of these other things that, you know, some part of this, you know, the gallows humor of, you know, being in a camp or, or, or making it out of a camp was, you know, a, a, an element to survival to sort of, um, you know, kind of, you know, temper the, the terror and fear and, and uh, reality of, of living, you know, through that or, or just post that. And, and, I, and I think that's a way of taking ownership of the thing to a certain degree and also making sure that it's not, you know, forgotten. Uh, yeah, I think that Jews can be a little glib about Hitler after a certain degree, you know, to a certain point, which, which I am as well. And I think we have license to do that. But, you know, certainly... In the climate we live in now where, you know, these kind of things become, you know, tangible again with, you know, actively, you know, anti-Semitic and racist factions within our own government, you know, it, it sort of takes on a new light. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's part of the Jewish survival mode to sort of, uh, you know, kind of demystify and humanize and um, 
create dialogue around uh, the exclusion that you know Jews have experienced. You know, you know historically. You, you, you know, I think it's a way in. You know, in terms of the different forms that your comedy takes, in the sense of, you know, I, I laugh a lot when I listen to the podcast, and you know, I laugh at your stand-up and you know TV. Do you think the line is generally? in the same place when you're dealing in those different mediums? Well, I mean, you know, no. I mean, because, you know, the podcast, you know, I'm not beholden to a live audience. I'm in conversation. Mm -hmm. Even if I'm not conversation, I'm not even beholden to being funny, per se, you know. Um, so, and, you know, when you do television, you know, the line is, is there's your personal line, but there's also the line that, you know, there's a context and rules yeah. to, you know, what you can and can't say. And, you know, you're beholden to, you know, censors, but you're also beholden to, you know, what the show you're on is willing to do. Um, you know, when you do a special, you usually have the freedom to do whatever you want. But ultimately, you, you know, you're performing for a live audience and you want to do well. Uh, so, you know, whatever risk you're going to take, you know, you know, from your experience in craft, uh, if you're going to cross lines, you should be able to do it successfully. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's a difference in terms of the uh, medium and context of, you know, what defines those lines. But when you're just doing pure stand-up, I mean, you can cross all the lines you want, but it's, it's still better if people laugh. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the challenge of crossing the line. I mean, is it funny? Are you making it funny? Is it supposed to be funny in a way that's shocking and, you know, not necessarily getting laughs? I mean, you know, these are all stylistic decisions when you have the full freedom of, of just being on a stage that you control. Um, you know, in lines when I'm in conversation with other people are, you know, I, I'm generally respectful of the other person and I'm not setting out to shock anybody or sandbag anybody, but I can certainly say things on the podcast in a non-comedic way because I'm not beholden to any rules. Mm. Uh, uh, but, you know, generally when you're doing stand-up on a television show, you're going to be following the rules of that show or that network. And if you're doing stand-up on, a, you know, your own special, you can kind of do whatever the fuck you want. But, you know, again, it's your professionalism and your craft is going to dictate whether you cross those lines successfully. Most of us have crossed lines to, you know, and it's failed or it's offended or it's uh, caused problems. I mean, I have most comics sort of worth their, you know, salt uh, who have been around a while who are, who are willing to take risks have uh, failed at those risks. But that's how you figure out. You know, you know what your territory is on stage, mm. how you own that as a performer, you know. And speaking of, you know, professionalism and not always feeling the, the need to be funny on the podcast, I mean, I sort of think, you know, you cross into the lines of therapy at some point, which I know, I, you know, I talked to, I interviewed Brendan too, and he's like, well, Mark, Mark doesn't say that because, you know, he, you know, he knows therapy and therapy is different from that. And, you know, I know therapy, I know it's different, not just for the person sitting there, but for everybody listening too. Well, but I think that's like, you know, therapy, you know, is a, a specific thing. And, you know, the reason that I'm adverse to, to, to characterizing it like that is that, you know, who dictates what people 
should and shouldn't talk about? And, and why, you know, is somebody talking about their personal challenges and issues, you know, categorized as, you, you know, therapy? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, you know, I don't know why, you know, who puts that? You know, if what I said is true, that, you know, therapy became popularized and sort of ingrained in the cultural fabric in the 70s, that what were people just not talking about these things? Or were they talking <laughs> about it, you know, privately with their friends? So, like, I'd rather characterize it as, you know, intimate conversation about, you know, real, you, you know, personal challenges that people have or, or things that you know are now called issues, uh, you know, in in a candid way, and you know, obviously that experience will be, you know, quote unquote therapeutic to people listening because it makes them feel less alone, or it makes them feel, uh, you know, like the people that they respect and admire have the same challenges they do. Yeah, is is that therapeutic, or is that just you know fucking you know what people are supposed to do? I mean, yeah. We're, pretty much equipped to sit, you know, I see old Armenian guys all over this place sitting at tables and they're, they look like they're 90 years old and there's five of them sitting around. What are they talking about? I doubt they're talking about their insecurities, but on some level they are, you know, like, uh, you, you know, I, I mean, this is how people interact. We've become very sort of disconnected from, you know, one-on-one intimate conversation, just sitting around talking about whatever. And if personal shit comes up, it comes up. That's what people do. So, my problem is the the sort of categorizing it. You know, yeah. I think it I think it trivializes, you know, what you know what human interaction is. Mm. You know, like if that's therapy, well, how are we supposed to behave? If you know, I'm not at work. You know, like you know, they're everywhere you go. It's like, well, you shouldn't say this here. You shouldn't say this there. Or don't be that guy at work because you know you're going to be exhausting other people. You know, you're supposed to have boundaries in certain uh, areas, and you're supposed to be you know, behave a certain way in conversation in different types of places, which are appropriate. But just a couple of people talking about being human, uh, you know, is not a therapy session. It's, yeah, it's a conversation. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's my personal problem with the with with calling it therapy, you know. So, you know, maybe I'll say cathartic. Maybe that's a better word than therapeutic. But I, you know, I want to, if it's okay, just take the chance to tell you that there was this moment you know, when I was just driving to my internship over the summer and you said something along the lines of, you, know, you weren't ashamed to admit it. You're like, yeah, you know, when things have gotten really bad, I tell myself, you know, at least I could kill myself. Yeah. And I just burst into tears, you know, so <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's it's a way, you know, but the, you know, I appreciate that. I'm glad to help out. But, you know, the next, the, the next part of that is, you know, when I say that's it, it's the spiritual reprieve of the faithless is that, you know, how anybody, you know, comforts themselves, you know, I mean, it's not a great state of mind, but I think what that, that particular line does, cause I've done that on stage a, a lot over, you know, another point in time, Okay. you know, like that's a, that's a bit I've worked out, you know, that I've done in my standup and I thought about it a lot. You know, what is that? Is yeah. that, you, you know, if you're a sensitive, heady person and you know, the world weighs heavy on you, you, you know, there is sort of this, you know, there, there, you know, self-pity is a tricky thing. And, and when you're, you know, not where you want to be or you don't think things are going to work out or, or you don't, you know, necessarily have a dialogue with, with God or whatever the hell else it is, 
that, you know, that there's something relieving about the idea that, you, you know, you, you know, you, you could always not live anymore. It's, it's, it's dramatic. And it's, you know, and you have a hand in that. It's a, it's a sort of dramatic thing that you do with your brain. But it, but it, but it is, you know, relieving somehow uh, for people that are not where they want to be yet, or they, you, you know, life is difficult. Yeah. And I liked, I liked that joke because it sort of lets some fucking air out of it. It, it, it kind of blows off a little steam. That's a very specific, you know, joke for a very specific type of mindset, you know, and a lot of people have it, but not everybody yeah. does. You know what I mean? Yeah, not everybody and, thinks that way. And I think it's just, it's cathartic because the, you know, the last thing I want to do is admit that that's what I, that that's how I've been processing things. And the last thing I want to do is say it out loud, but you just say it out loud so comfortably. And I break into some sort of, you know, mixture of tears of joy and pain, you know? Right, right. But I think that's what good stand-up should do. And that's uh. why I, I never really thought about it as a job or anything else. Because like that experience, to, to be able to laugh and almost cry at something like that is, yeah. is, is a revelation. It's a mind blower. And it's a, you know, it's, I think that's good. And it's funny. I mean, that, that's a funny joke, you know, really. But, you, you know, but it's also like, and I'm assuming that, you know, you are fundamentally not a suicidal person, but your brain finds relief in thinking about that. But you don't want to kill yourself. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that joke would be different. You know, people who are really suicidal are really suicidal. People who are just sort of anxious and uncomfortable and a little self-pitying, you know, they're not really suicidal. So, yeah. you know, that's a relief that you're not alone in, in finding relief in thinking that way. It's just, you know, your brain's going to, you know, you, know you, want it, you want relief, you get relief. And if you're know, thinking about killing yourself gives you relief, so be it, as long as you're not really doing it. Right. Cause, yeah, because sometimes it doesn't even feel like, oh, I don't, I'm not where I want to be or there's something I'm missing, you know, from life. But it's just like I have just felt sick for a couple months and like, you know, I'm just sick of it. And then like maybe right. the only way to get out of it is to make these kinds of statements to yourself, I think. Suicidal ideations. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 I know. I know. It, but, it, but ultimately, my experience with them in my darkest times was... You know, not so much that I wanted to kill myself. It was just really knowing that I could. That was enough to get yeah. me a little peace of mind. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Cause, right. All right, thank you so much, Mark. I, I really appreciate your time and your thoughts and on this. And you think any of that's helpful? Yeah, it's, it's all helpful. And happy belated birthday, too. Was it last week? Yeah, yes, the 27th. That's it, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. I know it's not exactly the lightest stuff in the world, but I think it's really important to talk about. If you're interested in checking out more of Mark Maron's stuff, he's got a Netflix special called Thinky Pain that I find absolutely hilarious. Um, he's also on the TV show Glow, which is currently shooting its new season. And like I said before, he's the host of WTF, which is probably my favorite podcast of all time. No two episodes will be alike, and that's sort of what I'm going for with this podcast. In this first season, my main goals are to show the range of interview types that I did, and to show each interviewee's unique associations and experiences with Jewish humor. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, Particles, for the amazing music, and talk to you next time, everybody.